the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. I've got another triple header for you from the good old days of Kiss Security, Iron Maiden Security. It is Big John Hart. He has got a lot of tales to tell about those days. He has also got a new book out called Head of Security, Untold Stories from Kiss and Iron Maiden. After that, I have got from, well, Canada, the one, the only, Lee Aaron. And of course, her band features my personal friend, Sean Kelly on guitar. So you just know it's going to be good. She's got a new album out called Diamond Baby Blues. So do check that out. And uh, hey, I will finish this with a new band, or certainly a newer band, called The Sherlocks out of the UK. They have a new album called Live for the Moment. There is a lot, a lot of stuff to uh, to cover today, so I'm going to keep this uh, talk up short and sweet. And uh, you know what? Here we go. Here is the one, the only, head of security, Big John Hart. We are speaking with Big John Hart. He is known or was known as the protector of rock gods, having worked with Kiss, Iron Maiden, Billy Idol, Prince, and many, many more. Uh, John, an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. It's nice to talk with you. And, you know, as a huge rock fan and Kiss fan, uh, Iron Maiden fan, Billy Idol as well, it, it is amazing to know that you were part of this machine back in the 70s so let me start off with that in fact um before we get to that you are writing an autobiography and these stories are going to be part of that and it's going to it's out on pledge music which we can go find at pledgemusic.com projects big john hart um in fact let me start with that Uh, what sort of compelled you to write uh an autobiography or a book telling of these stories okay my my business partner steve he's been after me for years because We've known each other for over 20 years, and, you know, we would sit around, and uh, years ago I, I would drink, and I would loosen my tongue a little bit, and we'd sit around, and I'd tell stories, and he thought it was great, and he kept telling me, you need to write a book, and I would always come up with an excuse, whether it was I was working, or I didn't have the time, or, you know, I would find an excuse, but then uh, over the last couple of years, uh, in 2015, uh, I had a, a heart operation, and uh, that put me out of work. So he came up to me after I recovered, and he said, now you have no more excuses, we're going to do the book. Yeah, well, he, that, that, that's very wise of him, because as a fan, I really want to hear these stories. So so I, I know some of this stuff will be covered in the book, but let me ask anyway. Uh, sure. Talk to me about getting into this line of work, of being a security guard. Before the whole kiss thing happened, sort of, what were you doing? I mean, you know, sort of what street corner were you hanging around? What what job did you have? And how did it sort of all evolve into Bill O'Coin, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley? I'm working for KISS now. Okay, you street corner, so you know me too well already. Um, That's right. When I was young, I got out of high school. And at that time, we didn't have all the, all the distractions of social media today. The biggest thing on everybody's mind and lips was music. So... I was in a garage band for a while, you know, and then that sort of broke up because two of the guys went away to college and uh, the rest of the band sort of fell apart. And I got a taste for the, the business, but didn't know enough about it. It was just alluring. And I liked it because you traveled and I really wanted to be a part 
for lack of a better word, or what's happening now at that time. So I sort of manipulated myself into various situations to find out more, and I was on a ticket line in Roosevelt Stadium uh, in Jersey City for the Grateful Dead in 72, and some kind of fight broke out, and I squel- you know, squelched that, and one of the fellows that was working for the facility seen me, and he approached me and asked me if I wanted a job. So I said, yeah, because it was in, in my train of thought. It, was, it would take me to the next level of information. So I worked for him, and I wound up working for not only for that venue, but a place called the Capitol Theater in Forsake, New Jersey, which was my hometown. So that worked out real well. Um, and that fellow went, then went on to work for KISS, and then when they needed another security guard, they, he called me and asked me if I'd be interested. And originally I was just supposed to go to Europe, and that would have been it. But, uh, of course, we went on further than that. So, so talk to me about those, those days working with KISS, because this was a time, of course, where nobody knew about their faces and they had all the makeup on. Uh, talk to me about some of those challenges of trying to keep this band anonymous and trying to keep this mystique out there. Uh, was it reasonably easy or was it exceptionally difficult? Well, it was a lot of work. Not so much physical work, but planning, thinking. Uh, and then, of course, we had a lot of luck on our side, too, because as the band was coming up at that time, unless you were playing major cities, when you get out into the, into the countryside, people didn't know exactly who they were, so they weren't, there wasn't that many fans, like at the airport to meet us or at the hotel, so it made it a little bit easier for us at that time. Plus, we worked, uh, when I started with them, we were doing six shows a week. So we didn't really have time to do anything but the shows. And, you know, when we got to our destination, if the time said we could sleep for a while, we were all sleeping. So there wasn't a lot of movement going around and around and carousing because the affordability of time wasn't there. But it, we did have to think about things because, you know, to protect the image, uh, we couldn't all be getting into fistfights and all that kind of thing. For one, the band wouldn't, wouldn't be able to help us. And, you know, like you didn't have the time to spend. So you had to sort of think scenarios out beforehand and discuss things with, with my partner, Rick, uh, who, was the, who was the fellow who hired me for KISS, and the other two things I mentioned, and J.R. Uh, Smalling, who was the tour manager at the time. And we, we would uh, sort of try to play devil's advocate and see how we could better our situation and what we were trying to accomplish. Talk to me about the early struggles of the band, though. Did you did you have a sense at some point that this was failing and uh, you needed to change jobs? Or when did you know that this band was going to explode and sort of become the next big thing in America? Honestly, it never crossed my mind, either either one of those scenarios. It was when we got on, the, when I got on the roller coaster, uh, that ride wasn't stopping. So we didn't, you didn't have the opportunity to step back and look object objectively whether they were selling tickets or not we could see but they played everywhere so sometimes the house would be a little soft expected so we never knew whether we were up or down but we did know when all of a sudden we started playing bigger halls and we went from being uh you know sometimes an opening act as opposed to a headliner when we became a solid headliner we knew we were on our way to somewhere. If I buy the book, what are some of the stories that we're going to see in there? You're going to, you're going to, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's already out about the band on the salacious side. We're not going to get into too much of that. 
But, you know, do you have, what was it like being on the road every day? I've been asked that a lot. What was it like being on the road with Kiss or Iron Maiden right. or Billy? And you, you know, people have the preconception that, oh, you're there, so you're just hanging out and you're having a great time. That's not quite the case. It's a job. And, and you, you know, there was things that we had to do every day, and that's everybody out there. The band had to play. They had to get to the venue. We had to make sure they get there. And we had to, you know, do the other things involved. Somebody's got to do luggage. Somebody's got to get keys. They're, they're mundane things, but that was an everyday occurrence. Cars, limousines, that was my department, transportation. Getting them in and out of airports, getting them in and out of hotels, getting them in and out of, the, out of the various venues. You know, that all fell under my realm. And then still found time to pick them up, bring them to the venue, get them to the venue, bring them back to the hotel, and then we carry on from there as to what the night's activities may be. Bill O'Coin. Of course, the manager for, for Billy Idol and of KISS. Uh, talk to me about first meeting Bill and what what was some of the things that he imparted to you in terms of having to uh, get organized? And, and Talk to me about Bill O'Coin. Bill was uh, a very gregarious person. He was great, uh, very to the point when speaking. Um, what he did, he did advise me, you know, if you look at early pictures of me, I look like a biker more than anything else. We had to change that look because, you know, he pointed out to me, and rightly so, we're, I'm dealing with heads of police departments, heads of hotels, you know, business people, and they don't want to deal with a biker or somebody that looks like that. So he said, we have to soften your image somewhat. So I went from wearing blue jeans to slacks and from T-shirts to college shirts and a sport coat. And that helped, you know, uh, pave the way because I already had the actual dealings down with how to talk to people and so forth. But the look helped me get there a lot faster. And um, he was very instrumental in pointing that out. Now, an- another person that was in the decor at the time was Sean Delaney. Was he equally important to the band's success as sort of Gene and Paul and, and Bill O'Coin? Or what were some of his roles, and how do you see him in the whole, in the grand scheme of things? Well, uh, Sean was a creative person. He, uh, he looked at their personas and helped tighten up the image, what, it's, what it became to look like. Because if you look at early pictures of the band, they're all over the place in what they're putting on their faces and what they're wearing. So he tried to solidify them into the look that they wanted to become. Then, you know, he was instrumental in helping Gene uh, develop the fire breathing. And they talked about, you know, the blood spitting and the overall movements of the band, the choreography. He was involved in all of that stuff. Yeah, and and so very much important in in developing it all. Now, of course, uh, the band is four characters. We've got Gene, Paul, Peter, Ace. Uh, What are your impressions of Gene from then and now? He he's always seemed very determined. He's always seemed very sort of larger than life. When you started working with him, and he was in his twenties, was he always that that same person, or was he a bit more um, family oriented, or more uh, you know just kinder? Just talk to me a little bit about Gene first, and we'll work Gene, our way through. Gene was always driven uh, in the business sense. He and when I first joined up with the band. He ate, drank, and slept kiss. He, you know, he told me when I was hired on, he says, I don't care what you wear in your off time, but every day there's a show and you're at it, you'll have kiss on. And uh, he understood that branding part of life then. As far as himself as a person, 
he wasn't real big on family, but you know, it was just him and his mom. You know, so he, you know, there was you know love there and all that kind of stuff. But he was he was going to be a teacher. And when you ask Gene questions, that's the answer you get, like you're talking to a teacher. You know, the big professor type, yeah, which he, used to crack me up. He, he's hilarious. Um, now, Paul. If you course, do ask him a question, no matter what it is, he'll circumvent it and put it about him. You know, you could be talking about the color of the sky. He said, "Well, let's show that." You know, somehow he'll make it that it's that's the color that he wanted it to be today. Yeah, and and it's funny because I I interviewed Gene uh, in October uh, of uh-huh. 2017. And regardless of what the question was, the answer was kiss, uh, no, GeneSimmonsVault.com. And, right. and right. I thought that right. was fantastic uh, because, listen, he, he's obviously had the success, so you can't complain about his method because it got him to where he's going. But Oh, I, no, they've been successful. And, you know, like I said, he was very driven about what he wanted to attain. You know, he's not from this country. He's a citizen now. But, uh, you know, when he came to this country, he was determined to live the American dream. And he yeah. wasn't going to let anything stop him, and he became very successful with that, you know, for just wanting to do that and being successful at it. Oh, uh, fully. Um, Paul Stanley has been sort of his best friend and arch nemesis at the same time over the years. Um, talk to me about uh, Paul at first, and then what was their relationship like from the beginning? Were they sort of two brothers, always hand in hand, we're going to do this together? Or was this... Oh. Okay. <laughs> They were like two brothers, but not hand-in-hand, hand, as most families are. You know, certain days you agree, certain days you disagree. And you brothers pick on each other for various things, the silly things in life, which they did. Um, but again, you know, after a while, you could see that, you know, the personality differences became more evident. Not in a bad way, but, you know, people we all developed out there. You know, because I'm the same age as them. And we were all, you know, aside from being in this learning curve about rock and roll, we were in a learning curve about our lives as well. Which is true. And you can see everything develop with all four characters. And yes, you hit, that is the correct word to use in regards to them. They are characters. Paul, though, was more on the, he was more mellow than the rest. You know, Gene had his thing. He'd like to be out there getting to the clubs and, you know, chatting up the babes. Ace and Peter were pex bad boys. They wanted to see the bottom of that alcohol bottle. And everybody that worked for the band, pretty much, we all had our own devices out there. So there was no, there were no, they weren't alone, for sure. Ace, um, for for many years, had uh, a drinking issue and stuff. Now he's clean and sober. How bad had it gotten on the road with Ace? Was it to a point where he just couldn't function some nights? Or was he always very professional, and he'll show up, and, and the show will go on? Or did you have these worries sometimes, like, oh, man, what are we going to do? Well, yeah, there was, there was times where uh, the band would have trepidation about whether Ace was in the same room with him or not. But, uh, you know, he would, he would work through it, but it made for an uncomfortable feeling. And, you know, there was frictions there that we felt but didn't know what was going on. You know, Gene and Paul are not going to discuss with me what they're feeling about Ace or Peter. You know, that wasn't my position, wasn't my place to know these things. Um, but we could feel it, all the people that worked for them, you know, if we weren't involved in that direct line of information, certain things would trickle down, but we knew before it even trickled down that there's problems. And you sort of hope for them to, to, to iron out the wrinkles. Took a while, but they didn't, you know. Eric Carr, 
at at one point replaces Peter Chris. Yep. I met him a couple of times. He was always the kindest, nicest person, and unlike Gene, he made everything about you. So he would, you know, you would he would say, "Hey Mitch," and then it was all about Mitch. And and I just always thought that that was incredibly truly truly a sweetheart. He was the happiest person I ever met to go in a rock and roll band or around Kiss. And he, but he was a, a genuine Kiss fan. He was over the moon when he got that job. He didn't even care whether they paid him or not. He just wanted to be there. And, and so what, what was it like for you when this, uh, the change occurred and Eric was there? Well, um, it's awkward at first because it's a new person. Right. But I, I had no way to change it if I wanted to. And it wasn't my place to want to. You know, I, I worked for the band as a whole, and I continued to do so. Um, what comes down the pike, you have, you have to uh, deal with, you know, in a professional manner. At least that's the way I look at it. And, you know, whatever they had decided business-wise is their decision. And Eric, as I said, he, he was unsure of where he was. Because even though he was hired and to come in, he knew he was re- who he was replacing, he felt awkward. You know, like, wow, this is weird. You know, but then again, on the same token, he was real happy. Eric was thrilled. I, I mean, when he got the um, when he got the gig, he wrote me a letter, actually, on this red stationery, because that, that was his thing, uh, red stationery. Right. And, and he was so thrilled, and he said, oh, we're going to be flying off to Australia and stuff. And I was like, wow, right. yeah, this is exciting. Um, wh- when did... When did things with the band wind down for you? When did 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 you and the band part companies? Around what year? And sort of what was sort of going on at that time? That eighty three, and and right. what was it about that time where we just said, okay, we need well, to go? Well, they in. had made changes, obviously, in in certain things, and it was changing coming in management. But what they had decided to do was that if you know up until that point, I was a salaried employee. You know, when we were home, I got paid, but I'd come into work, you know, in New York with them to see what was going on. And if they were going out, of course, I'd be there for that. However, um, they, through their accounting personnel and management at the time, decided to do away with that, which means I didn't have a job full time. Right. I was married. You know, I had uh, responsibilities and I had to have work that I could rely on. So I started shopping around, and Iron Maiden had had approached me earlier on if I would like to come and work for them. So I contacted them, and uh, we struck up a deal. And originally, it was, you know, when when, um, Kiss was supposed to go to Brazil in 83, a lot sooner than they did. Uh, So I waited, but I had made them a commitment that I would take them to Brazil, and I did. I, I got them down here for their first week of press, set up the first show at Maracanã, and then I had to fly out that morning to join Iron Maiden in Casper, Wyoming. Got there. <laughs> that, that's a flight right there for you. So, so well, let me yeah, get to, that was a long flight. So, so then let me ask you this: Glickman and Marks come in as managers. You've got C.K. Lent in there. You right. are you were on retainer, and then they suddenly just said. Yeah, that's not practical for us. So you're no longer on retainer. We're just going to pay you, sort of pay as we go. Right, you're on the tour. That's great. You know, if we have if we have work, and if you're available when we're home and they, we need you for something, then we'll you know give you a call and uh, you can trot on over. But I 
you know, I couldn't wait for that. And I knew from already working with them, there wasn't enough activity to keep me busy all the time. Was also, that... you know, the decisions there were made because they had had went through so much turmoil with, you know, the dismissal of Peter and then Ace and it's up, it's down. We don't know what we're going to do. They weren't sure they were going to stay with the makeup. They wound up inevitably taking it off and they didn't know what, you know, where their direction was going. And yeah, it was new management, and they were, and if nothing else, they were uh, um, an accounting company. So they were like all about the bottom line and counting the beans. So hey, we're not going to be spending this money because the income wasn't as big at that particular time as it had been. So they're cutting corners. Wow. So, so, I mean, at, at that point, you were with the band what ten years, and suddenly, oh, nearly, nearly, but. But that must have hurt suddenly that you're no longer in a retainer, that well, you're just disposable. I felt a little bit miffed about it. But again, business is business. If that's the way they're going to be. That's the way they're going to be. And and I knew for the most part, it wasn't so much the band, you know, which is by that point, the decision makers were Gene and Paul. But the accountants are in there and they're saying, look, you know, we got to do this. We got to do that. Uh, and God knows what they're actually telling them about uh, their monetary situation. But I'm sure you know, that they would swing things around. And, you know, I tried to give them the opportunity. I said, you know, you want to take me back? You let me know. And I didn't wow. get back till 1987. <laughs> wow. So, all right. So uh, Iron Maiden comes calling. You You fly off to Casper, Wyoming. Now you're dealing with Rod Smallwood. So when you look back on the history of rock, Bill O'Coin is right up there with visionaries, but Rod Smallwood. What a guy. I mean, he has built that band and kept them going. I mean, not to put down Steve Harrison and Bruce Dickinson, but. No, no. He, but, but yeah, he was right there with them. He, you know, every step of the way, uh, Rod was there. He was the original Eddie on stage. So, so talk to me a little bit about the difference in, in management of Bill and Rod, because Bill seemed to be all about the show lights and get out in front. And Rod was sort of like slow and steady wins the race. Well, let's let's you know let's. How do you sort of compare both managers and management styles? Very different. They're very. There's no comparison. They 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 chose to do things in different ways. Like when I went with Iron Maiden, it was, you know, I was used to trying to keep people away from the band, and Iron Maiden was out there sitting in the pub drinking with them, and they'd stay there all night. They didn't care. So it made my job easier and then not so easy at times. As far as the management goes, Smallwood, he wanted them to be accessible to the masses. So when they would play England, they would tour, they'd play everywhere. Not just the big arenas, they'd play the small ones. They'd play the medium-sized ones. You know, you was almost doing a pub crawl. And, you know, that's just the way they were. And it worked for them. I mean, the fans were endeared to them. Because of that, that they would come and play the smaller places as opposed to just the big ones. Yeah, what a great band. Now, you know, 83, 84, 85, that's really when Iron Maiden starts hitting those strides and starts going from a little local band to being this bigger-than-life kind of thing. Um, Correct. What was it like for you to be part of that projection? Because you, you had seen it with Kiss, and now you're seeing it with Iron Maiden. Can you draw some parallels? I mean, is the road to success equally the same or did they take these two separate paths and was one sort of more exciting or more like oh wow than the other i mean just, how do you well, sort of the road to success is basically what both bands did hard work 
crafted differently. You know, uh, Iron, uh, Iron Maiden didn't have to work as hard for acceptability as Kiss did. Even though Kiss was unique in the very beginning there, there wasn't a lot of people that would, uh, you know, give them a grain of salt. They, they dismissed them all the time as being three-chord wonders and, and uh, you know, them guys in makeup. We're not sure what they are. They, they, there was no, they didn't understand the direction or what, or what the band was trying to do, just the outside people, the press and so forth. But, uh, you know, they just kept plugging at it. They worked. They worked wherever. They, they played wherever they could play, you know, and, and Iron Maiden did basically the same thing. <clears throat> they didn't have to sell quite as hard because that type of music was already becoming established, and they just happened to be very crafted at it. So it made it a little bit easier for them. Yes. But they still worked. They worked hard. You know, even when I was joined with them, they were doing four or five shows a night, maybe, I mean, a week, probably six. You know, and that was, that was the same thing I did with, with Kiss. When you, I was just going to say, when you got to Maiden, had they already made the vocalist change, or was that something that you were privy to? No, no. <laughs> when, I, when I talked to them and accepted the job, D'Angelo was there, and Clive uh, was there. And then when I met them in in uh, in Casper, Bruce was there and Nico was there. So you know those changes happened before I even got on on board. On board, uh, Prince. You you spent some time with Prince. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that because that one. I know Andre Augustine has had some wonderful stories to tell about that, but but Prince was sort of a I don't want to say peculiar in a negative sense, but he was peculiar in the sense that you really had to be on call twenty four hours a day, and if he wanted to record a song. At three in the morning, you had to make it happen. Is that well, somewhat that's correct? True, but I was hired in that capacity. Okay. So I lucked out. He was a peculiar guy, though. Very gifted, very very talented. Uh, we didn't talk too much because I was I was hired to do the venues. I was venue security. I was not personal to him. And the fellows that were, and he had nine of them. Uh, one being his brother. Uh, they you know, insulated him from pretty much anything. I believe that's the way he wanted it. They didn't give me a, uh, a uh, directive about that. And I dealt with him. The biggest dealings I had with him was about what's going on at the concert halls, how he wanted to change things if he needed to. And then after the shows, I would be standing backstage when he, where he would come off stage and he would tell me where we were going next. Okay. And he loved to do after show parties. Oh, didn't he? And 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 was that now? Okay, so were you working then at the same time as Andre Augustine? Because I know Andre was oh. more personal. Okay, so oh. you weren't. Um, Billy Idol. He was, of course, at, at one point a a Bill O'Coin protege, a Bill O'Coin, um, I guess, management team. Right. <laughs> right. Um, was it Bill O'Coin that got you to 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 work with Billy, or was this something different and separate? It was through his office. And I was, uh, they called me and asked me if I was available, which I was at the time. And it wasn't a tour that I did for Billy. I wound up being his personal security person slash um, liaison with the office. They were having problems with Billy or Billy was having problems with them. They couldn't get responses out of him. And he was basically out in California floundering around. He was supposed to be working on material for his uh, upcoming album. And and also, there were supposed to be some interviews involved about a possible 
uh, movie project. But they didn't have good things to say about what was going on out there. Of course, the management company was in New York. And, uh, you know, he was running around with, you know, a, a bad group of people. You know, the, the L.A. crowd that, you know, wants to be the posers and they know everybody and they're all in the business, but they're nowhere near the business. So that's who he was taken up with. And, of course, they're spending his money, getting him in trouble, trashing his hotel rooms. He had huge bills about that, and he wasn't accomplishing anything. So they sent me out there to try to change that around, and I did. I was successful with that. I, you know, gained Billy's trust, and we sat down and we talked about a bunch of things. We stayed there for about a month more in California, and then I, you know, with conversation, convinced him we should go back home. I said, you're not getting anything out of here. You know, you're not writing. You're not happy. So why stay here and spend money? Go home to your familiar surroundings. Maybe that'll work for you. And we did. And yes, it did. And, you know, I stayed with him through the production of the album. And when it was in a can, I went home. So, so how can I put this? In a sense, you were sort of just sent out there to be his babysitter. In a sense, yeah. Okay. I, w- I was the minder. Okay. And, and tried to uh, get him back to what he should be doing as opposed to what he was doing. And it turned out uh, well. I don't know what I don't know what it album he was. What, what what album was Whiplash that about? Was, uh, which one? Whiplash Smile was was the album that it turned out to be. Oh, so this was eighty six, I guess. Eighty seven. Eighty six. Correct. Eighty six. Oh, that's a great album. Don't need a gun. And um, what's uh, 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 got to be a lover? Well, thank yeah. you for that because I, that I I rocked that album that entire summer. So that, so thank you for for getting him back to work. Um. Uh, a couple of moments in Kiss history that I just want to go over. Sure. So we, you know, Eric Carr comes in, and the band uh, is trying to put together an unmasked tour. Not very successful, but eventually they say, "Aha, let's go to Australia." And of course, you know, the inner sanctum, the whole Australian thing has become sort of mythical at this point. What was that experience like getting to Australia and discovering sort of these new lands, these new fans? Because you had gone from shows in North America that the attendance was starting to dwindle. I mean, Dynasty was starting to. And then you get there. That's why why the management was making changes. Now, we went to we went to Australia. But that time was still a coin. So I was, you know, that wasn't going to change. When we got to Australia, uh, of course, the first couple of days, it was press junkets. But the, the, the overall vibe of Australia, it was the closest thing that I'd come to working a Beatlemania. The, the place was just not it's crazy, it right? Outside. Uh, pardon? It, it was just completely crazy. I mean, you look at the, at the archival footage. and yes. it, it outside was... the hotel, 24 hours a day, singing Kiss songs. Everywhere we went. We couldn't move, you know, without, you know, there was fans everywhere. We went to, we were invited to meet the, uh, the Lord Mayor of Sydney. They took us there on armored cars. The only way we would have got there. Couldn't drive a car down the street. There was too many people in the street. There must have been a point where when Kiss took off the makeoff, then they were just sort of walking around the city. That must have actually been very easy for you compared to Iron Maiden or compared to Billy Idol, where people know their face. Uh, right. But was then, it? then again, the things that come into play that most people don't realize is if you live in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or London, right? people like this are around you all the time. 
so the uh, the uh, thrill or the 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 curiosity isn't as strong when you're in places there other than what I just mentioned. People want to know who you are. The exception being Australia, Japan, because they're far away places for most bands to tour. So whoever comes there, it's a big deal. But during the states, you know, we I would have more problems in in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, than I would in New York City. Okay, I see. What, uh, yeah, and I see what you mean. And plus, because when you... people people would come by and go, "Oh, that's Paul Stanley." They may say hello. They may want a handshake, but it's not a pestering situation. They don't want to become your best friend overnight. Whereas in the smaller cities who don't have these same opportunities on a regular basis, then, you know, they want a piece of the action, more or less. They want to talk to you. They want to say, gee, I think you're great. And and whatever else is on their mind. Because they can't go out on a Saturday night and go to a club or two and see other famous people. Because they're not there. Right. And, and so of it course- sort of takes, it makes the edge a little bit better there. And I was going to say also, even if they, they didn't have makeup, when you see these guys come in and, and they have a, that rock and roll look and their hairstyles, especially back in the 70s, and so, you didn't need the makeup to hide them. People were like, oh, yeah, that's got to be a guy. Oh, no, it, it, exactly right. And, and they might not know exactly who they are, but they knew there was somebody. Right. They couldn't figure out who was who right. for the most part, but they knew that they were the band Kiss. Another thing that, that was uh, another moment uh, in the band's history, you, you mentioned Brazil and, of course, that big show with Vinnie Vincent and stuff. Um, but Vinnie Vincent, he has resurfaced after 22 years, and, and I'm actually excited for him. I think everybody should have a, a, you know the possibility to be out there and have a happy life. Um, sure. when, he, when he came into the band, what was that like for you? Because... There were times where he would do these extended guitar solos, and the, and there just seemed to be this sort of, you know, piss and vinegar kind of relationship with the band. Was it always like that, or or were there times of like, hey, we've got this talented guitarist, and thank God he's here? No, unfortunately, and that's what caused some of the riff with Vinny and the band, because when he got in the band, he was genuinely happy. He wanted a job. He wanted a gig. Uh, and then he also wanted to show them that he was worthy of the gig, you know, that he, he, he had his chops together. But, you know, at that particular moment, they wanted somebody to pretty much go through the motions of what they already established at that time. Now, you know, that didn't sit well with Vinny. And, you know, he, he didn't vocalize it, but he tried to continue to push his point by playing the extended solos and, and you know, trying to to show them that you know he he was worth his grain of salt. And unfortunately, at that time, after having the big problem, you know, the breakup with Peter, and now the breakup with Ace, and it was just a very uncomfortable feeling. Uh, they didn't want to go through that again. So basically, what they were hoped hoped that they were hiring was a fella to come in and just play on parts. Now, after that first tour or so was over. Had it went that way, perhaps he would have been treated differently. And I'm only surmising this because I don't know. Uh, you know, it might have worked out better for him to uh, gain more accessibility to being involved more as a player instead of just being a replacement. Which, um, 
Which situation was more devastating to the band, losing Peter or losing Ace, or were they equally sort of created? I think it was equally uh, a problem because the band was fan-driven. The identities were ingrained with people. Everybody had favorites. You know, now your favorite isn't there, but now there's somebody who looks like your favorite. So that that sort of, uh, I, I think that in the beginning was a, a big problem with the fans. You know, the 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 band they got through it. You know, because to them it was it was a decision that they needed to make for the betterment of the band as they saw it. Do, so, do you, do you, you know, think it, they it should... didn't affect them quite as much as I think what the fans felt? And exactly, and of course, their faces very much like a Coca-Cola bottle or a Pepsi bottle were essentially a very recognizable brand. And now as they tour in 2017, 2018, they used the Spaceman and, and, and the Catman. Just according to you, should they have just put Eric in Peter's makeup and should they have just put Vinny in Ace's makeup? Or was it a, a calculated gamble to change sort of the look of the brand? I think it was a calculated gamble. And they also... I think gave respect to the two folks that were gone. You know, we, yeah, we're replacing you with new new people, not uh, recycling. You know, I mean that's the way I felt about. It. So, yeah, we got a new guy. He should have his own look. And 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 yeah, the gamble was well. Hopefully, that will create the same kind of intrigue that we had with the Catman or the Spaceman. Yeah. You know, but see, I felt. By putting replacements in in the makeup that was originally there, well, that's like what we're doing Broadway now. You know, this well, guy you know, can make it. We got this guy. The understudy is in tonight because the other one's got throat problems. You know. Yeah. And, and listen, I, I was a huge fan at the time, and and when they put Eric in that makeup, I bought it because the the makeup was a great design. It really was. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And but, and and I think because. Of, of how the band was up to that point, there was a uniqueness there. And for them to continue with uniqueness, I thought was, was a good move. Oh, absolutely. But then again, when they came out with the Ank Warrior makeup, I was sort of like, well, what the hell is that? Well, yeah, I, I think they were saying that too. But, you know, somebody got the bright idea that uh, he should be uh, Akhenaten, I guess. Yeah. But I'm I mean, not sure. Yeah, and, and you know, I was never privy to any of those councils about. Well, what direction are we going to take this fella in? Yeah, I I just think that, per, just personally speaking, had they put uh, Vinny in a more sort of polish or you know gene make where the eye not right down the nose, I probably would have said, oh, okay, that makes sense. But the design was just like, well, well, what? What is that? What? I I know. Yeah, anyway. and of course, by <laughs> then you know, there was no longer a Sean Delaney involved, and so the 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 design qualities were left up to the bands. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and it, to me, that's the worst makeup. And I, and I say that without any disrespect to Vinny, cause it's not about the person in the makeup. I just thought the makeup was not that good. Not, not the right. person behind he was, it. He wasn't happy about it either, but he, he didn't care what it was. He just didn't like wearing makeup Yeah, for that type anyway. Well, and, yeah. and you know, he, he, he hated the platform shoes because all he did was wander around and stumble. That, that's where he most resembled Ace. Because he, he he has bad arches, so when he went to damn platforms, he was stumbling all over the place. 
And of course, the one question that all Kiss fans have asked, and I know they've asked it of you before, but uh, they always say, did Vinny save Kiss? And, and the answer to that is? I don't, I couldn't make that assumption <laughs> as to whether he did or didn't. I think that if the band felt that he wasn't working out, they would have made another change until they found something to run with. So uh, as far as giving him the credit for saving the band, I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't say that in good conscience. Yeah, and and I will say this from the fan perspective. I have always argued that Paul Stanley has saved the band because through the '80s, especially when people were doing other projects and movies and this, and I think Paul just sort of kept that ship going straight. And if it wasn't for Paul, regardless of how many Vinny songs there were, or Eric Carr drum solos, or Bruce Kulick's. Or, I don't think it would have survived. So I always say Paul saved the band and has always saved the band. That's well, you could be right there, but you know, it was a genuine, uh, group effort in a lot of ways, some more successful than others. Uh, but as far as perpetuating the band, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think Paul by being what he had been all along, uh, is probably what the saving grace was there. Oh, it really is. Um, I will remind folks that the uh, Pledge Music campaign is uh, pledgemusic.com uh, forward slash projects forward slash Big John Hart, and that is H-A-R-T-E. And, of course, the Facebook correct. is facebook.com forward slash Big John Hart, again, H-A-R-T-E. John, I could go on forever and always, but I want to leave some stuff for the book. I mean, that's Yeah, yeah well, we're, I still got a few more that uh, haven't come out yet. So. Yeah, so we'll let we'll let be all right. And uh, I very much look forward to uh, to to reading the uh, the book myself. I I think it's just going to be great. And all the other ones that have written books in the past have been great too. So uh, more kiss is always good. Kiss is the way I say it and see it. Uh, well, I'm glad you feel that way, and I thank you very much for the interview. Yeah, absolutely. And anytime, and and when the book comes out, if you want to do a follow up, I'd be more than happy to. And uh, maybe we'll we'll go through the chapters and and pick out some stuff and and see what's going on. and and All right, great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. I look forward to that. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Big John Hart. Uh, I think we covered it all. Ace, Peter, Eric, Vinny, Gene, Paul, Kiss, Iron Maiden, Billy Idol, I really don't think we missed anything. So do uh, do yourself a favor. Do check out that book and uh, let us move on to Canadian, iconic Canadian singer Lee Aaron. She has a new album out called Diamond Baby Blues. It is half covers and half new songs, new compositions. In the covers part of the album, she covers Janet Jackson, a song made famous by Peggy Lee. Uh, with Johnny Cash on top of that. But also, she covers one of the greatest rock vocals ever, the song Mistreated. And the way David Coverdale has sung that song over the years and sang the song when it was recorded, uh, you really, I mean, just wow. So it shows a a huge amount of kahunas on Lee's uh, part and her band's part to uh, to tackle that song. So so check out the album just to hear how that all turned out. And uh, without further ado, uh, known to legions of fans as the Metal Queen, let's get right into this. Here is the one, the only, 
Lee Aaron. We're speaking with singer Lee Aaron. The new album is Diamond Baby Blues. A good day, Lee. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you. And you as well. Yes. So let's get off. Let's get running here with the album first, and then we'll start looking back at some other things. But Diamond Baby Blues, it is an interesting, and I'll call it sort of a hybrid because you've got new songs mixed in with cover songs. So it's not a covers album, but it's not a fully new album, but it's a great album. Um, talk to me about the album and, and how you sort of came up with the concept to do a little bit old, a little bit of new, and a lot of you. <laughs> it's funny, I was just talking to a journalist in Belgium about this earlier. It's like, it's not like me, you know, to just take the straight arrow path and go, oh, I'm just going to do a whole album of Bob Dylan covers and make it nice, like a nice, neat little package. It's just not my style. So, um, but anyway, you know, no, we had this, we had talked about, uh, very shortly after um, uh, Fire and Gasoline had came out, to uh, to launch back into the process of gearing up to make another record because I felt like you know my my live band um, who've been with me for a while um, certainly John Cody and Dave Reimer my bass player have been with playing in my band for over 15 years now and then Sean came into the fold about four years ago. And him and I just got on like a house on fire in terms of writing. And it just felt like the band was really starting to hit their stride. And uh, so we talked about the idea of doing an album right away and bounced around this idea of making it a hybrid album with some covers. Um, just because, you know, traditionally I've never really done a lot of covers. I've always written original material. So um, it's not like... Um, you know, we were throwing together an album of covers because we didn't have time to write. We we actually genuinely put covers on this album that were songs that meant something to us and um, were things that we wanted to do. You know, um, for me, you know, being a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, the Linda Ronstead tune, of course, um, was something that just impacted me so greatly when I was a young girl watching her on the midnight special singing that going, Oh my gosh, she's just so badass. I want to sing like Linda Ronstadt. And, um, um, just trying to think of some of the others, um, of the covers on the album. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the others, the well, covers, uh, you've got go one that, that, that's particularly, uh, poignant to me. You, you covered mistreated. Now, of course, Deep Purple did that, but for me, it's, David Coverdale, when he took that song over to White Snake, and he performed it with his earlier sort of blues band before he became sort of the glam hair guy. Um, talk to me about picking that one, because, I mean, that's vocal gymnastics right there. <laughs> well, it's, that's funny that you say that. That was song was, um, it was strongly suggested to me that I pick like an iconic hard blues tune and try to re redo it my own way. Um, and which I thought would be a great idea. Um, so I started, you know, pouring through some, some old material and stumbled across that live recording of him and Richie Blackmore performing it live in, I think 1974, is it? Or, and, um, I mean, just such like, I mean, his, the veins in his neck look like they're about to, you know, explode. I mean, it's just such an impactful performance. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's just, the song is already epic. And I thought, what if we could take this tune and somehow pull it into a feminine realm and take a tune that's already epic and take it to yet another level? 
You know, what would that look like? Because I looked at that like a like just a challenge. So we brought it into pre-production and um, we started working on it. And we were originally performing it in the original key. And the problem was I just sounded too much just like David Coverdale. So we, we stepped it up two tones. Which, by the way, um, that's never a problem to sound like David Coverdale because... One of, the great, <laughs> one of the greatest singers of all time, at least in my in my world. But yeah, go go it ahead. It just looks unusual when you have breasts, though, right? You know, so well, so yeah. Uh, anyway, we just we so we stepped it up a couple of tunes, and then when we actually got it into the studio, I had heard uh, a type of like a sort of ethereal kind of keyboard on it, like and in the end, which ended up being uh, Mellotron. We had John Webster put on there, and. Um, and I heard these background vocals. And so I'm hoping we achieved what we set out to do, which was, again, to give it a slightly feminine edge and to um, just step it up one level into the, the epic realm, you know, hopefully. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it goes over great live. You know, it's, it's a fantastic tune. It really is. And, and, and it shows uh, sort of the confidence or... or well, for the lack of a better word, the balls that you have to do that because to take a song like that and make it your own when it's had such a history and it's had such a vocalist interpret it, you know, kudos to you for, for even tackling it. And it sounds great, by the way. I've had a chance to preview the album and it does sound absolutely stunning. Now, another one on there that you've covered is Black Cat by Janet Jackson. And so, so some folks would say, well, you're covering a pop dance song, blah, blah, blah. And yet... Uh, you do it. You do it fantastically well. Uh, talk to me about not being afraid of going into those different genres and picking the songs that really just spoke to you, whether it's Mistreated or whether it's Black Cat. Um, picking a Janet Jackson song and, and not worrying about genres and how fans might react to these songs. Well, a couple of I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, number one, th- that was, by the way, the only song that Janet Jackson actually won a Grammy for best rock female vocal, female rock vocal performance. So, and I think of all the songs that she, number one, she wrote that song by herself. Number two, it is a rock song. Um, she happened to be in that genre um, with the majority of her other material, but that song is, it, it kicks ass. It really does. Um, that actually, believe it or not, was not on my original list. And I don't know if, you spoke with John Sean Kelly about this earlier, but Sean it was sort of in the eleventh hour, a couple of weeks before we were about to go into pre-production, and Sean sent me an email and he said, "You know, what do you think about covering Black Cat by Janet Jackson?" He said, "It's just again a kickin' tune," and he said, "I just think that you would do a smashing job vocally on it." And so originally, it sort of came out of left field, um, and I wasn't a hundred percent sold on the idea until we took it into reproduction, and then Sean started playing this intro that sounded like the Rolling Stones, and I went, oh my gosh, like you're totally on to something there. So sometimes you go into pre-production um, with ideas, and you throw them against the wall. Some of them work, and they gel as a band. Some of them don't. That's one of the songs that did. But in general, the, you know, the idea of not being afraid to step outside of, you know, there's this sort of I don't know, this weird sort of stigma in the rock world that, you know, if you're in the rock world, you have to stay entrenched in only songs that fit down this narrow path. And I just, I'm not a believer in that. You know, one of my favorite um, 
artist is Nina Simone. You know, she um, was a Juilliard-trained pianist. Um, she was a political activist. She was all of these things. And one of the brilliant things that she did in her artistry was she took songs from all kinds of different ilks and brought them in, but that, it was that voice. It was that voice. It was that piano playing that made everything that Nina Simone did brilliant. Now, I'm not saying I'm brilliant, but I mean, I, I think that, that um, you know, I don't have those fears. I think that you, you either, it's either working or it's not. And I think that the common thread here is my fantastic band. I've got amazing players in my band and, um, and my voice, you know, it's the thread that, that pulls it all together. And, um, you know, i I'm a firm believer as well. in you know, if it, if it, it not cr- overly crafting things in the studio, you know, it has to work. It has to work in a live situation, it has to work when you're playing it live off the floor. You know, and all of those tunes that we went into the studio with were working. And so they, I think that that translated onto to the disc as well. It really did. Now, now, you mentioned your voice, and you have been quoted as saying that you now take uh, better care of your vocal cords than before, and you realize that it's your instrument, that it's my instrument. Um, talk to me about that, because you look at some singers as they get older, and, and, you, and I don't want to name names, cause that's not... But you hear them singing and you go, oh, God, what was that? But you've just gotten progressively better and better and better from from all the albums I've heard. And I've heard your jazz stuff and I've heard all the what what sort of is a regimen to take care of your voice? Is it just singing in a different register? Is it, you know, hot tea before shows? How do you sort of maintain the instrument and are able to deliver a vocal performance like you do on Diamond Baby Blues? <laughs> Oh boy. Um, well, it's funny, you know, I think you, you have to be a young idiot and wreck your voice a few times to learn that you really, you can't continue down that path. I mean, when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I had bad monitors. I, you know, you know, partied too much, you know, all the things that we do when you're younger, didn't get enough sleep. And, you know, and I had various junctures throughout the course of my career when I definitely went through periods of having a little more, uh, some vocal issues and, um, you know, you get older and I mean, it's, it's really just basic stuff, Mitch. It's like trying to get enough sleep when you're on tour, which is sometimes difficult. Um, staying hydrated. Uh, I always warm, I do have a regimen of some, they're almost operatic kind of scales that I do before I go on stage because I mean, you wouldn't go to the gym and lift 250 pounds over your head without building up to that first, right? So um, I always um, warm my voice up with scales for about a half an hour before I walk on stage so I'm not walking out there and trashing my vocal cords um, cold, right? And... Um, and, uh, but did you ever have any issues yeah. in the sense? Did you ever have like nodes or any kind of cortisone? I mean, you, you never got to that extent of damage or or that extent of like, oh, I've gone way. No, too far. but I but I can tell you a story of what did happen to me. It wasn't right. from singing. It was about five years ago. I got pneumonia. I had never ever had pneumonia in my entire life. It was just a virus I got for my kids, and I was run down, and it and I didn't stop go, go, going. And I ended up with pneumonia and I ended up with all these respiratory 
like a bunch of respiratory issues. So throughout that process, I had to see a respirologist who consequently put me on a bunch of inhalers, part of those being steroid inhalers. And I, after the pneumonia was gone, I had no voice. I had laryngitis for about six weeks. I was kind of freaking out, like I'm never going to sing again. And I had to see, uh, wait for a specialist appointment with a, um, a guy, one of the top vocal cord specialists in Vancouver here at VGH. And um, what had happened is from all the, the steroid inhalers, I had gotten a massive fungal infection on my vocal cords. And I actually did have to have the cortisone injections right into my neck. It was pretty scary. Um, but once I was properly diagnosed and got on the right medication, it cleared up right away. But it was, it was a real pivotal um, point for me because for a few weeks, I thought, this is it. I'm never going to sing again. You know, what is going on? And from that point, especially that point forward, I've been, I really treat my vocal cords with kid gloves. Like I'm very uh, careful um, just not to, um, you know, I, t- I try not to eat a really acidic diet, <laughs> like just all those kind of things. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of fans don't think about that, but those acidic diets and all that stuff, it has an impact. And, and, you know, Russ uh, Dwarf of the Killer Dwarves just had a, a surgery yeah. that was on his neck and show. And there's that fear that I'll never do this again. And so that, that must have been. Did you did you go through a moment of real fear where you thought it really is like this is it or was like, OK, I'll I'll be better in two months. I mean, was, was there did it get to a fear? Oh, point? no, okay. I, I was kind of freaking out like this okay. is it. I guess wow. I'm not going to sing anymore. It, it, it was quite scary. It was a. Uh, wow. It was an epiphany moment for me. However, um, with that said, it wasn't, how do I explain it? It wasn't a fear. Like I, thankfully, I don't, I don't derive my, my, my ego doesn't get massaged. I don't derive my entire identity from being Lee Aaron. You know, gotcha. I do have another life with my family and I, there's other, I teach special needs kids. I do a bunch of things outside of music as well that give me a lot of fulfillment, um, so I wasn't freaking out like I'm not going to have a life, but I was, there was, I had this immense sadness, like, what if I can't make music anymore? That was the big thing because it's my, it's my greatest passion and my greatest joy in life. Right. Yeah. And, 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 I'll relate it to the Vancouver thing here, but it's sort of like the Sedin brothers in with the Canucks where they just realized that it's time to step away. And, and, I guess we all get there at that point, but you just weren't ready for it then, right? It was just like, um, not yet, but... Well, yeah, you know, I keep thinking, if you'd asked me 25 years ago, would you still be doing this today? I I don't know what I would have told you, but here I am, and I'm still doing that. And, it, you know, I think I probably get more joy and more enjoyment out of it now than I did back then, because it's not the same world anymore. It's not the same world where you've got a giant record, like the the record industry was just so run by money in the 80s and early 90s, and it's not like you've got a record label going, well, we're investing a half a million dollars in you, so you're going to wear these clothes, and we want you to record these songs, and we want you to write with these people, and there's just so much more artistic control that's come full circle and come back around to the artists themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and so that that's what I want to start exploring here because, you know, <clears throat> growing up in Canada, we of course knew you as the metal queen and, and we mm-hmm. and, and all that and and body rock and there was the image and all. But since then, you've done the jazz thing. You've done the hundred songs for the Marquis de Sade. You've done, you know, opera. Talk to me about exploring those different musical, uh, you know, 
styles and, and, and being able to say, you know what, I don't want to be the metal queen for the next 30 years of my life. I want to be slick chick. I want to be the Marquita Sadly. I, talk to me about exploring the other different genres. And, and do you still have that desire to still do that? Because you've done uh, Fire and Gasoline, which is more of a rock record. And you've done this, you know, uh, Diamond Baby Blues. And But do you still have that desire to go out and do an operatic thing or a, or a jazz thing and, and still explore and, and just be free to do whatever you feel like doing next year and the year after? Well, that's an, an interesting question. It's it's And it's a hard question to answer because I know that I don't really feel like an artist should be have to, like, again, fit into a box, right? Right. Um, I, I was talking to someone about this earlier that, you know, there's artists that are quite content to make, and, you know, with all due respect, I love ACDC, but it's like they made the same record their whole career with... Correct. You know what I mean? Yes, same but, lyrics, same chords. And they, they, same, they were super successful at it. It was a formula that worked, and it worked for them, and I have, you know, so much respect. And then there's David Bowie, who never made the same record twice. And I, not, I'm not comparing myself to David Bowie. I not even touched that level. But, but the ethos is I can, the same. Yeah, I, I, I really, in many ways, feel that, that that's me. That's just, you know, I, I, I love music. And the, 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 the older I get, the more I know, the more don't, I don't know about music, you know. Um, and there's... I mean, I happen to, my husband happens to be a musicologist. I live in a house with a library with 250,000 pieces of vinyl in it um, <clears throat> at my disposal. And, you know, there's just so much great music out there. And, um, you know, if I want to go forward and I want to make a new, even if it's a new rock record, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go back and listen to um all my favorite '80s record, '80s records, because there's not a lot that I'm going to learn from that. Um, I'm kind of interested in exploring other areas of music that I can pull into my orb, if that makes any sense. And so, um, like right now, I'm into um, this weird artist named Ezra Furman and Charlotte Gainsborough. Did she, you know she made records? She's actually incredible. She's does this really sort of atmospheric ethereal kind of music and um so i feel like i'm always learning when i'm listening to stuff that's that's different than than what i do um so you know am i going to turn around next year and make another jazz record probably not but i can promise you that the next rock record i make won't be exactly like dave uh, diamond baby blues either um because well because it shouldn't be I just like to always be evolving into something. You know, it's funny because we were, um, again, I was talking to another journalist earlier about this, and I, they were asking me, like, what attracted you to jazz and blues? And it was, you know, it's like, well, because the nice thing about that form of music is that it's, it's got to be a heads-up gig. It's, it's actually a living, breathing art form where, you don't play the the songs the, exactly the same way on any given night. You know, you might look at the drummer and go, oh, wow, like we're inspired right now. God, you don't, I'm not going to sing. You guys trade fours right now. Okay, now, you know what, you take a form, you solo, and now I'm going to scat over the next form, and then we'll come back in. And this all happens on the fly while you're playing. And that's what attracted me to that form of music because it's you really have to be a musician to be able to 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 play that type of music. And... This got um, the band into a conversation um, 
last weekend when we were doing some shows together about those old Zeppelin records when they just stretched things out in the live situation and Robert Plant would just sing whatever and you know what you know what I'm saying and well yeah and that's what I, I was going to say don't that don't make uh, music like that anymore or like the Who live at Leeds and you know what I mean yeah there there was in the 70s especially this desire by musicians to have a performance be unique and not just paint the same painting every night and then we got into we're running tapes. And, yeah, yeah. Then we're running into tapes and 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 backing tapes and 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 loops. And it's just like, ugh. And people, well, so it's, the show is going to be better because it's going to be very uniform. But it, it's it's taken the soul out of of what music's supposed to be, which is unfortunate. Um, you know. Well, and that's what we were talking about last weekend: is making a record the next, our new, the record after. The, we're already talking about the new record that's got even more type of spontaneity to it and soul and because nobody makes records like that anymore and we're like well what the heck let's make one that would be fun and um yeah and i agree with you like because and, and i actually still work with acts once in a while that do you still use tapes and loops and yeah i'm just i'm and that's not that's it's, not what i'm into <laughs> and, and by the way and that that's why it's great that you have sean kelly in your band because he comes he's cut from that cloth of old school and tonight's guitar solo is not the same guitar solo as tomorrow's and so on. And he, I, he gets it because I, you know, he, he gets it. Um, just this quickly. Uh, I, I want to talk about the Lee Aaron project where you, sure. you were there with Rick Emmett, Rick Santers, Earl Johnson, um, just these great names in Canadian rock. Uh, it wasn't meant to be, your solo album in fact you were hired i guess to come and be the voice and they they had called it the lee aaron project but afterwards you you sort of took the name and rightfully so uh but but talk to me about working on that project and coming in and and essentially being a hired gun and but still working with these guys that are just so big in canadian rock well just so you we correct, gonna, the, correct the sort of the, the explanation a little bit. It actually was the intent was that it was going to be a Lee Aaron record. Okay. Um, um, I was a very um, I think I was eighteen years old. Yeah, and I had just t- been taken under the wing of my my first manager in Toronto, and we were talking about making a record and I had been in a high school band at that point and doing and and writing in the high school band he said you know we're going to get rid of that high school band I'm just going to put you with a bunch of he had a, he had all those connections which was the truth he knew Rick and he knew Rick Sanders Rick Emmett Rick Sanders all the guys in Moxie and um Frank Soda those were his connections and he basically went to them and said I want I've got this girl she's got a great voice I want you to write for her and with her. So I, I was involved in quite a few co-writes on that album. Um, right. Again, I was a, a really young girl. I really didn't, and naive, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, so to be honest with you, I was kind of not even that impacted by the star value because I didn't really, I kind of got thrown into this situation. And it, my only concern at that point was performing well and singing the best I could and doing the best job I could on, on writing those songs. And, but in the end, because um, there was such immense input from these huge Canadian talents, it just didn't feel right to call it a Lee Aaron album alone. So that's why it ended up 
being called the Learn Project. Um, so yeah, I was that was a, a huge, huge learning curve for me as a young girl, and I learned, uh, you know, I learned great things about Rick Emmett from about structuring background vocals and um, and uh, you know um, Frank from Frank Soda about you know he was a great pop rock songwriter you know um so it, it was a great experience for me yeah, and 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 it's a great album and then well i'll just finish with with metal queen today uh, you know <laughs> sure because you know i'm trying to think how old i was at the time 84 so i was like you know 16 something like that and of course metal queen was was played on much music all the time talk to me about that album and and you know, they were trying to, the metal scene was very active then, and, and I don't want to say there was dress-up involved, but the, the image that was projected was was, was very interesting to look at. Uh, is that something, how do you look back on that album and and just the way that it was presented to the public via the record company, like, here's this metal queen and here's the outfits she's wearing? Because, you know, when we all look back, it's sort of, it's kind of cute, cute to look back at, right? <laughs> you're very gracious in the way you're choosing your words, <laughs> Mitch. I'm trying. <laughs> like, I mean, the word novelty comes to mind. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it was novel. You know, what can I say about that? Um, again, I was I was still a young, quite a young girl myself. Um, I had written a bunch of songs with my my then guitar player, a guy named George Bernhard. Um, Ironically, Metal Queen was probably the heaviest song on the album. It wasn't um, that album. You know, it had a lot of similar production values to the Def Leppard kind of uh, scene. You know, um, uh, yeah. And um, so a lot of those songs on that album were actually just sort of pop songs with giant guitars. Um, When I wrote Metal Queen, um, I had gone through a period in my very early career, again, with early management, between the age of about 19 and 21, where I had been in, you know, I'm trying to word this carefully because I'm not the type of person that goes, oh, poor me, I'm a victim. But I was subjected right. to some pretty insane uh, and uncomfortable marketing. Right. Um, you know, really tarted up, dressed like a sex kitten. You know, it was all about my looks. And, you know, and the reality was I was not comfortable with any of it, but I lacked the, um, the, the wherewithal, sense of, right. the wherewithal, the confidence, the maturity, the boundary setting to be able to just go, no, I'm not comfortable with this because I thought these guys know what's the music industry and I don't know anything. Um, and so Metal Queen was kind of a response to that. Because it was post that period, I had just kind of gotten out of that management deal. And, um, you know, so I was all about writing this song about, you know, this invincible goddess that nobody could mess with. Right? right. And so it was sort of a, that song was kind of a, a kickback at the over-sexualized, um, in the sexist hard rock industry, right? And the way that women were treated. Um Unfortunately, the whole, you know, they, it's like, we got to have a marketing angle. And then I showed up at the video and there was, you know, they're like, we want, well, we're, we're going to dress you up like a warrior princess. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, and, and in the end, I think that the original message of the song um, uh, became, right. I think, you know, 
eclipsed by the marketing again. It did. Which is sad because that, that wasn't my original intention. Um, I mean, the good news is many, many years later, people are still discovering that song and it's become sort of an anthem of empowerment for, you know, legions of rock and roll lovers around the world. So, um, I've come to terms with it and I'm able to embrace it. And when I play the song, we play the song live people, they freak out. They're waiting for it all night. (laughs) Well, because it's a great song. But, okay. but but as you come full circle now and Diamond Baby Blues is out and, and the other mm-hmm. album, it, it's got to be very rewarding and, and, and comforting to you to go, you know what, I went through all that sexist marketing and the photo shoots and all this nonsense and I survived it. And maybe survived is a tough word, but, but you know what I mean. I got through it and now you have this independence to do what you want, how you want it. You know, you can put an album out this year. You can put two albums out this year. You can put an album out five years from now. But now it's not controlled by that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it must be nice to have that freedom that you survived that nonsense. And now you've gotten to this point where I run the ship. It's my ship. Get off my ship if you don't like it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't have said that better myself. No, it is. And it's it's just nice for me at this stage of my life and my career to go, you know, it's just, it's about the music. It's about the music. It's about, and it, and it's, um, you know, about the joy that we get out of that. And I mean, because the reality is nobody's making a lot of money selling hard copies of anything anymore. And the streaming and the digital download world doesn't really pay anybody, anybody's bills. You've got to go out there and play it live and so if you're going to continue in the music industry, you've got to do it because you're passionate about creating and about getting up there and performing live for people. And that's what keeps me doing it is because it's, it's just fun. <laughs> you know, I guess I don't know what else to say about it. It's just, it's, it's great fun. It's, it's a passion and it's a passion that I hope to pass along to my own kids yeah. too. And and it's nice that we've gotten away in the sense from the music business and brought it back to fun because that's what I remember from the seventies. It was fun, and then the eighties became very very corporate. And then of course, you know, uh, always a pleasure, Lee. Thank you so much for 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 taking the time. And uh, of course, the new album is Diamond Baby Blues. I do recommend everybody check that out. Head over to leearen dot com. Uh, merci. Thank you. Hey, it was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Have a nice dog okay, walk, too. Have a nice dog walk, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFong. And a very big thank you to Lee Aaron. Always, always a great pleasure to talk to Lee. The new album is Diamond Baby Blues. Do yourself a favor and check that out. And while you're checking stuff out, how about a new band from the UK called The Sherlock's? Their one and only album called Live for the Moment came out in 2017, but they are currently touring North America. They will be touring Europe and other places later this year as well. And of course, Rolling Stone magazine, Billboard, and all those magazines of that ilk are declaring them the next big thing. They are very, very, very excited about this band. And I got to say, it's a fun rock album. It really is a fun rock album. Guitar-driven rock, if you prefer so do check out the Sherlock's, and uh, I sat down with a lead vocalist here in Crook. So uh, here we go. 
without further ado, from the UK, it is the Sherlocks. We are speaking with the Sherlocks, Kieran Crook. The uh, latest album, of course, is Live for the Moment. In fact, it is the only album. Uh, Kieran, a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, mate. Likewise. So let's let's start off with the album, the debut album, uh, which, of course, came out last year. Talk to me about, you know, we always say in the business that we have a lifetime to write the first album and then six months to write the second album. Uh, talk to me about the, how these tunes came together. You know, are these things that you had running around when you were 15, 16, and eventually you said, okay, we've, we're going to put them out? Or how did the process come together to get Live for the Moment? Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty much like how you described um your first album's obviously like it's the time where it's the, it's probably the most time you get to spend on an album crafting your songs until you get to a a certain a certain size as a band where you can afford just to take like Kings of Leon would be a good example um, where you can just afford to take as much time off as you want to write an album because when you come back you're going to make a big impact anyway so um we're obviously still relatively new as a band and trying to build. So the the first set of songs, but for the moment, we uh, we like to call it a bit of a, a joke we've got going. We call it uh, the soundtrack to seven relentless years of hard graft. That's how we describe our album. But it's basically, it's, it is that, yeah. It's like a bunch of songs that's been wrote over a seven-year period. Some were wrote, um, someone wrote like when the band had not been going long at all and then one of the tunes uh, called Motions which is like the second to last tune on, on the album that were wrote in the studio like whilst we're doing the album so that was just like spontaneous it, it were an old song and we flipped it on its head and, and literally made a new song so it's quite interesting in, in that respect because it's like a bunch of songs from different years I suppose whereas this album I'm working on at the minute is going to be uh, fairly mostly new, brand new songs but there is the odd tune on there where it wrote before recording the first album and we just put a couple of these songs to the side because we thought it sounded more we thought it sounded like songs that would fit better on the second album than going on list for the moment so uh, yeah I got a few songs banked and then writing new tunes so, so talk to me about because uh, you mentioned you're, you're you're working on the second album. What is sort of the game plan for a new band like yourselves? Do, do you do you want to put out this first album and then tour it as long as possible, or do you really want to get a catalog going and get a second and third and fourth album out as quickly as you can? What is sort of the plan on the second album? Is that something you want to see later this year, or is it no, no, no? Let's get to 2019. Let's tour this one as long as we can. Well, a bit of both, to be honest, because like, we wanted to, we didn't just want to be one of them bands that um, brings an album out straight away, like the second album, like pretty much straight after the first, and you've hardly, hardly toured it. But at the same time, you can exhaust what you're doing. So it's like, after so many tours, it gets to a point where fans are just like, like, come on come on boys release some new tunes sort of thing like it it can get a bit stale but um we've got we've got a, a good few we've got a couple of tours out of this one and we've been in like new territories and stuff so it's nice to it's 
nice to do that, but we're, we're definitely um, looking towards album two now. I'm not sure on the time. Hopefully, I'd say like more towards early next year. I'd, yeah. I'd love to get second album out. That'd be great. But, um, Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, you have been quoted in the past as saying that you think you could be the pioneers of guitar rock and you want to bring guitar rock uh, or guitar music back. Uh, talk to me about about that and and why do you think guitar music had dissipated or sort of disappeared over the last few years? I don't know. Like, I got quoted on that and that seems to be a, a talking point in most interviews I do and I, I didn't mean it in like a, an arrogant way. Like, I just literally mean... I'm not the best at using words, so I could probably just said pioneers, like thinking, I don't know. Just, well, actually, just I gotta say, to say but, I don't see um, it as being arrogant at all, and in fact, I actually see it as as being quite. Uh, and, and I'm oh. losing my words, but but it's actually very nice to see because a, a lot of younger bands, especially, come up and they they're they're interested in the technology and loops and all kinds of beats and this and that, and you never hear somebody talk about the guitar, and it is one to me one of the most fundamental instruments in all of music. So it's, it's actually nice, uh, not arrogant, but nice that you would say that you want to bring back guitar rock and, and guitar music. To be fair, all I meant by it was, I just, when you look at guitar music from, from, from where I'm sitting, it, it feels like guitar music is a genre, like it seems to become popular and then it drifts away for a bit and then it comes back. But like it, it seems to come in waves and like you obviously had the Oasis thing and Blur and the 90s stuff and then it went a little bit quiet and then it, like early 2000s you had another big bunch of guitar bands like uh, Kaiser Chiefs and uh, Arctic Monkeys and the Libertines and stuff like that and it, it, and then it's like I don't know at minute we're going through or we're, we're going through slash coming out of like a bit of a dance phase and I'm I'm not against dance music, but it just it sometimes feels just a bit stale for me personally because I'm not I'm not into it. Like it just I don't know. You just hear like I don't even put the radio on these days unless we're being played, of course. But uh, it just yeah. sounds like everything just sounds the same to me. So it's like it's nice to see it's nice to hear guitar bands. It's nice to see and hear guitar bands. Uh, on the radio and doing well and we're all for guitar bands getting it a go and uh, coming back in but like yeah what I meant well I don't see why we can't contribute to that next uh, that next group of guitar bands that are going to come through and and be one of the bigger bands it's like bands like Kasabian they're still huge bands and Kings of Leon and stuff now but they're not new they're still relevant, but they're not like a new band that's like appeared. So that's that's all I meant by it. It'd be nice to see the new bands coming through, as well as the old bands that are still kicking over. And yeah. uh, we could be one of them big new bands. Yeah, and I think you can't. So so talk to me about that because you mentioned some of the of the older bands. You mentioned Kings of Leon. You mentioned Blur. You mentioned all these bands. Uh, you'll be opening for Liam Gallagher later this summer. You know, it's easy for them to put their name on a marquee and go do a tour and they can throw, throw out some music and fans will go check it out. But how do bands discover the Sherlock's? What is, how do you sort of approach 
getting known? What are, What is sort of the way that you have to do it these days? Because it's not like years ago where record companies would do all this massive tour support and get you all kinds of promos. Now you're sort of on your own in a sense, right? Talk to me about building a career and getting the Sherlock's known and getting them out there to the fans. Yeah, I think, I don't know, a lot of it's DIY, like you say, and uh, doing a lot more yourself. Unless you're on like a huge label who's going to pump loads of money into you. And we're not on, we're, we're not on a, a huge label, but it is a it's, a, it's a really big label, but it's not like a huge label that's spoiling us with money and making sure we get really successful or whatever. It's, and, and the best thing about our label is it allows us to do whatever we want to do. So it's still, everything feels natural. And that, I think that goes all the way down. That like goes all the way down to your fans. And I think your fans can tell what's real and what's not. And we've always been very, very real with our fans and, and had a, that's like the main thing about our band and why people come to see us. Cause we have a connection with us fans. And I think when people see us, they see, uh, like, they almost see a little bit of themselves in us because we're just four normal lads from normal working class backgrounds who are on, on a stage just having a laugh, really. We're just literally like, started off as a laugh and it's still a laugh to us now. Like We just did it out of boredom, the reason we even played in a band. So, no, like nothing's forced where, where some bands might appear a bit manufactured. We're just literally having a ball. But down to seeing us, um, we just we don't really do anything. We just do the usual, um, the usual places like be on be on social media because I think it can only help, and it's certainly a lot easier to reach people. Like in America, for example, can check us out and keep up to date with us and stuff. So we're into all that and just yeah, just being just just interacting with fans really fans, as much right. as you can, which is important now. Um, historically, there are there are bands and uh, you know that have been sort of very popular in the UK, very popular over there, and they don't really break over here. And I'm thinking of some very older bands like Status Quo, like Thunder and stuff like that. They just great stuff in the UK. And then, how important is it for the Sherlock's to get established in America? And how important is America to a band? I'm not sure how important it is to other bands, but to us, it's certainly really important. Like. We said we, we sort of got to a certain stage in UK where we're um, we're doing really well in some places, and uh, some places we've still got a lot more building to do. But um, we've we've always wanted to from from getting into music and starting this band and and getting to a certain level and learning stuff. Then you learn about um, all these bands trying to break America and stuff, and it's something that interests us massively. We want to go over there and. We'd, like there's there's nothing more than we'd love to to go over to America and do big tours and play to big crowds in America. Like that's that's the dream for us. We don't just want to be a UK band. We want to like go all over the world and, so, and be able to tour everywhere. So then, what, is there a a plan in place? I mean, does it require you to get you know American management or because a, a lot of the, the bands in the past that I've talked to about this, they said, well, we had a, a European manager and blah, 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 and we never got to, and they always regret that as a mistake. Is that something that you need to focus on then and getting more sort of local 
uh, representation to help, or or is the plan really just we'll just keep touring until everybody knows us? How do you sort of see it working? No, we de- we definitely want to, and it'll happen over time. We definitely want to get things in place. But um, the main thing, like like just before going in to do your own headline tours, it's it's always a good idea to do supports and stuff. So like we we'd love to go and tour like the US with a, a big a big American band and. And, and play to people to, to sort of build things, build things a little bit first. But yeah, we're certainly not going to hold back from. Uh, I think it puts a lot of people off because it's like so big. Like even, even uh, our last American tour, it was like a ridiculous journey from one place to another. But you've got to do it, and um, it don't put us off. We're, I'm looking forward to coming back. Right, can't wait. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that the the first album is is jokingly referred to as seven years of sort of hardship and gruff and, and stuff like that. Uh, at some point, as you're going through these the, these years of, of turmoil and so, has you ever thought about you know what what sort of keeps you going? Do you think, wow, this is way too tough. Let me just go work at the factory, or let me just go let me just go work for dad or something. I mean, does it get Talk to me about the motivation to keep going, and are there times where you just sort of say, "Yeah, this is too hard. I, I can't do this." No, um, just complete opposite of what you said. Really, like we, like let's go and work for dad or whatever. I mean, at minute, uh, is well, my dad is he works for us. Like he's constantly on road with us, but that's another thing. But um, pretty much that, yeah. Like I've always, I mean, luckily up to this point, what you'd class as a normal job. Uh, in the UK at my age is probably working in McDonald's or something but um, I've never I've just never wanted to do that like I've always tried at school and stuff and then ended up going to uni for a year but that, like the only reason I went to university for a, a short time was just literally to avoid getting a job because it's either you finish school so you're either studying or you've got to get a job and work so I'm like right I go to uni and a bit of time there really and write songs and because I was doing a music course it it allowed me to get in a studio and just literally write a few songs so finish that but like when we as far as a band keeping going then it's just to well the main reason is because we enjoy it for a start if we didn't enjoy it we just wouldn't do it but uh, I don't think we ever feel like this is getting too much or whatever and uh, the longer you're the longer you go, hopefully the more successful you get, uh, the easier it gets. Like we're starting to notice that in the UK, like the, the gigs are getting bigger and there's more budget to allow for crew and whatnot. And then before you know it, you're not carrying your own gear anymore. So it's, uh, it's nice. It I mean, just gets easier, doesn't it? What? Well, I mean, that, that that's the first level of success when you don't actually have to tear down your own set and <laughs> you can have somebody no, else no, do tell it. Tell me about it. Tell I me about it. And we've done our we've done our fair share. We've 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 done some uh, some horrible loadings. I'll tell you. I know, and and I love those. I love the clubs that are like on the second floor and they don't have any elevators. Yeah. And you <laughs> you gotta slug all that stuff up there. <laughs> we we once played a we once played a gig in um, Swansea, I think. And uh, this 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 loading, it was like stairs. You know the metal stairs you get on the outside of a building. We had to yep. load up about God knows how many flights of them, like 
that that were in the rain as well, so all the stairs were slipping. It it was just like on the top floor. It was just oh, ridiculous. Well, some horrible stuff. If it makes you feel any better, I was in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, on March nineteenth this year, and the bands Saxon and Black Star Riders were playing, and the the band opening was Black Star Riders, and they had to set up their drum set outside because there was no room yeah. inside, and and it was snowing, so the drum tech was <laughs> in the snow setting up his drum kit so that they could grab the whole thing and then lift it. it that was a whole new that level that, of doing your own gear. That that was that was classic. <laughs> that's that dedication for you, that. And, and a bit crazy. Uh, now, I know one thing that, of course, comes up a lot in in interviews is the fact that you are two sets of brothers. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that. And and I hate to say this, but, you know, bands do change members at, at, at different points, or, you know, especially when they had 10, 12, 13, you know, 15 years of career. Is it the, yeah. the four brothers and that's it? Or at some point, if one guy wants to leave, it'll be like, OK, we'll we'll move on and and. Talk to me sort of about the interpersonal in there. Is it sort of like the Davidsons versus the Crooks on some decisions? Or is it, you know, just talk to me about that 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 situation, because it's, it's interesting to me. I don't know, really. We're just like, most of the time we, we're fine. But, I mean, we have those ups and downs like anyone, but it's not, it's certainly not like, I don't know, it's weird. It's like, I wouldn't say it's Crooks against Davidsons, because it's a mixture. It's like, I've, I've had, my fallouts with um, the other brothers are like. To be fair, it's not usually if it's anyone. It's it's either me, me and Brandon, or me and me and Andy. Me and Josh usually don't really clash. I don't know. I think it's just you spend a lot of time with each other, and it's easy to like get on each other's nerves. But I think the, the main thing is to keep it. Keep everything a joke, like keep everything not so serious, so you're not getting on each other's nerves and stuff. It's like, well, yeah, I, think, I, mean, I, I mean, most I, of the time we 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 work well, and uh, it certainly helps the band, like as far as getting new songs down. Like I write the songs, but like I still have to bring it to band practice, and we have to smash through it a few times. So it's quite it's quite nice being brothers like that because if someone's not doing what sounds good, then there's no, you're not, no one's bothered about telling each other that something doesn't sound good. Right. And uh, as far as anyone leaving the band, I, certainly, I can't see it, uh, I can't see it anytime soon. But if anyone did want to leave the band, they're more than welcome. Right. And of course, as we know with most bands, it's it's generally everybody against the lead singer. That's usually how it works, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Um, you are supporting Liam Gallagher in the summer, uh, well, in fact, um, you just finished supporting him, but you're doing it again at uh, Finsbury Park. Uh, talk to me about yeah. Liam and opening uh, for Liam and what it's like to to be sharing a stage with somebody who actually, you know, is a legend. I mean, he whether folks want to accept it or not, he is a legend. He is, yeah. He's, um, he's a living legend. He's like, like whether, whether people like him or not, you can't knock what is what is achieved in in his life so far and being like the gigs he's played like if you if you put yourself in his shoes and actually realize the gigs he's done it's it's mental and some people wouldn't even be able to handle it 
I think they'd just, I don't know, I think they'd just melt like yeah. Wicked Witch at West. Yeah, and, and last year he, he played a, a festival uh, on this side of the pond, and I got to stand on stage and look out as he was playing, and the energy that he uh, gives and the, and, the, and the crowd, the way they respond, it was just so fascinating to see. It was just, it was wonderful. But what was it like for you to, to, to share that stage with him? I mean, what, how does that help the career? How does that, you know, what was it like for you just to, to be part of that? Yeah, just to be associated with him is, is top. And to, to play with him is even better. Like to, like you said, share a stage with him. It's, um, it's, it's really good of him for a start to even let us on. And uh, we were we were over the moon when we found out we could support him on a full tour as well, which is pretty rare for us because we hadn't really supported uh, many people like many artists as uh, as big as him on a full tour. We've we've always just done the odd gig, so to do a full tour with him was awesome. And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. And uh, Kieran, just a great pleasure talking to you. Of course, the album is Live for the Moment. It is out now. Uh, I do recommend checking it out. And uh, we will see you on tour in North America, end of April, May. And uh, there you go. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no worries. No problem. Nice chatting to you. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.